my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow, And I'm Jesse Spur. Today we're welcoming Janine Johnson, who's a clinical nurse at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Heart Support Service. She's going to be talking to us about the important topic of heart failure. Welcome, Janine. Hello, thank you very much for having me. I think Janine's heart might be racing at the moment. <laughs> Janine, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in nursing. Okay. I guess um, my nursing journey started uh, back in 2001. I went to QUT at Kelvin Grove um, where I did three years and in my third year I got to do an elective subject and I chose some cardiovascular nursing. I guess I always had a bit of an interest in the heart because my mum was actually diagnosed with an atrial septal defect which is between the top chambers of the heart, the atria, and uh, they found this on a routine chest X-ray when she was 21. So on the x-ray, they found that her heart was enlarged. Um, so she needed to actually have open heart surgery. And that was back in 1970. Wow. Um, yeah, so they actually did a bikini cut um, in, back then because she was 21. Um, so, the, yeah, they didn't go down the centre of the chest like they typically would these days. Um, and, yeah, she's still doing quite well. She's had a few atrial fibrillation and flutters and an ablation last year, but... Overall, you know, considering it was so long ago, um, she's managing well. So um, after university, I actually had to have shoulder surgery from an old horse riding accident. I'd um, fell off my horse in show jumping uh, when I was 17 and I knew that I had this big long nursing career ahead of me so I thought I'd better get this sorted out. Uh, So I had that done and then um, I missed the new grads um, positions because I was still recovering. Uh, so once I'd recovered in the March, um, I was fortunate enough to get a position at Mount Olivet, which is now St Vincent's, and I was only there for 10 weeks and then I was fortunate to be offered a new grad program here at the Royal Brisbane Hospital in the Medical Assessment and Planning Unit, which was up on Nineby South, um, so the furthest ward away from emergency, but uh, it was a 24-hour ward, so uh, we got a lot of um, different patients with different conditions up. Uh, It was a quick turnaround ward, so I got really good at doing patient risk assessments pretty quickly. (laughs) And and then I was there for two years and then fortunate enough to be offered a 18-month rotation program down in cardiology. I did six months in general cardiology, six months in the cardiac catheter lab and then six months in the coronary care unit. And then um, I got to choose where I wanted to stay. So I chose to stay on in the coronary care unit um, I loved looking after the patient pre when they came in with a heart attack, for instance, 
and then looking after them post-procedure. And naively at that point, I thought that I had experienced the whole journey of the cardiac patient (laughs) Um, until many years later, I was fortunate to um, do a three-month secondment for the heart support service um, to cover some long service leave and that was a real eye-opener. And then I thought, oh, gee, (laughs) the journey doesn't end at the hospital. Um, There's a lot more to it and um, I really fell in love with it. Uh, So a couple of years later, a permanent position came available and... um, I went for it and I got it. Great. That's where I am. Right. So your number one is what are the signs and symptoms of heart failure? Yeah. So I guess I thought I'd do a little recap on what heart failure is just so we can understand some of the signs and symptoms associated with it. Um, So what we know so far is that the heart is a one direction pump. So we receive deoxygenated blood into the right side of the heart. So it goes through the right atrium into the right ventricle, out into the lungs where we get good oxygen exchange and then we receive good oxygenated blood back into the left side of the heart, into the left ventricle and then out into the body to perfuse all those organs. So um, the term heart failure is when the heart is unable to pump as well as it should to meet the rest of the body's needs. So when the heart isn't pumping well, our body's natural response is to send hormonal signals to the heart to make it work harder and to the kidneys to make it hold on to sodium and fluid. And this is in an attempt to boost blood supply to the rest of the body. And this works really well initially and over time the heart's able to compensate. However, over time uh, the heart gets weakened um, because it gets enlarged and stretched from all the overworking And then um, this forces fluid then to back up into the lungs and then out into the other vessels in the body. And this is typically known as decompensation of heart failure. So a common sign of heart failure is shortness of breath. And this can be at rest or on exertion um, and sometimes associated with a cough as well. So I think it's important to understand that it's all gravity-based. So some patients living with congestive heart failure, for instance, might have some fluid in their lower bases. They may be able to get around up and about through the day quite normally without too many symptoms of shortness of breath. But as soon as they lie flat at night, they feel breathless. And this term that we use is called orthopnea, so the inability to be able to lie flat at night. We actually asked that question of like when we're trying to explore someone's work of breathing and their function is like where do you sleep at night it's a really telling sign oh i sleep sitting up in a chair or i sleep in bed but i'm on like three pillows elevated and you're like okay yes no that's exactly right and you might find on the ward that your patient is propping themselves up with extra pillows to sleep and they may not really realize why they're doing it and um and the other term that we, or they might be using their bed remote even, putting up the back of the recliner, so you think, oh, why are they doing that? Um, so to assist with that breathing because that fluid's got to shift back down to those bases of the lungs to help assist with the breathing. Um, so the other term we use is PND or paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. And um, this is when you may have intermittent sudden episodes of breathlessness, particularly at night time. So you may find your patient um, wakes up through the night feeling really breathless, gasping for air, needing to sit up on the edge of the bed, for instance, to really get their breath back. Um, So that's another sign of PND. Um, 
as mentioned earlier, we can get um, breathlessness on exertion as well um, and these can be mild to moderate um, and you might find that patients have admitted to hospital uh, with weeks of increasing shortness of breath and maybe reduced exercise tolerance. So it could be from, the, you know, someone living with chronic heart failure at home that's able to manage things at home and shower themselves and do their stairs to not being able to do those things or needing to take extra regular breaks. So. I worked in paediatrics for a long time in, in the cardiac service over there. And, you know, babies get quite blue around the face. They also um, sweat a lot. Do you, do you see those signs in adults as well? Uh, yes, we do. So, you know, naturally, if the body's not getting that good oxygenated blood to the muscles and the organs, um, we quite often will see that because they've got a reduced cardiac output. So, Janine, your number two is that nursing interventions can make a real difference in acute heart failure. So, so what sort of things could a nurse do? I think the main nursing management um, of the acute heart failure patient at the bedside would be things like making sure that they're comfortable, monitoring of their vital signs and oxygen saturation, as well as fluid management and symptom management. So I think it's really important to understand that a patient who may be struggling with their breathing, um, they may be confused, it can be really scary and quite overwhelming um, and, and distressing and it can really drive their anxiety. So um, I'm a big believer in just trying to reassure your patient, keep calm, just say, oh, look, you know, I know you must be feeling really awful right now, but you're in the right place and we're going to have the doctors here soon to help make you feel better as soon as we can. And I think just keeping that communication up with the patient, even if they're feeling dreadful and can't breathe or barely talk, just communicating with them and reassuring them um, will help with their anxiety. Yeah, and I think and help with their endocrine response as well. Like yes. we're, we're trying to downregulate their sympathetic nervous system that's trying to flog their heart to go yes, harder. That's aren't right. we? Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I have noticed over the years is that people feel differently when something's wrong with their heart. You know, like when people have got kidney failure or there's a, something wrong with their lungs, I don't think it's the same psychological association as what we see with the heart. And I know obviously the heart keeps you alive. I know that's part of it. But I think it's also this romantic view that the heart is love and the heart is Valentine's Day and the heart, you know, it people kind of have an identity, I guess, with their heart that they don't have with other organs. You know, we don't we don't hear someone singing a song about total eclipse of the kidney, do we? <laughs> um, it's it's really there's a there's a psychological component that makes it different. Is that would that be your perception as well? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, the heart it's a powerful organ. Um, yeah, we're very defined by how we're feeling uh, with our heart. And um, a lot of patients think, well, the term heart failure, oh my goodness, you know, that's the end of me. I'm going to die soon. So that's a really um, important thing. And our service actually used to be called the heart failure service. And then we changed it to the heart support service because we thought that term just sounds horrible. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone's just going to cark it yeah. <laughs> straight away. Um, so I think that's the big take home mes message here is that. Um, if you've been diagnosed with heart failure, um, that, you know, you can live with it for many years and it can be really well managed. Mm. 
It's funny how far, like how long it's taken us to actually start to think about the language that we use and how that lands on patients. And we're, because we're operating in a pathology model all the time in acute healthcare, not thinking about this as something, like you said, oh, that there's a lot of journey past the end of hospital. You thought you knew everything about, yes. <laughs> about the cardiac patient. So naive. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so... And I think this whole thing, again, like psychologically, if we identify strongly with the heart, um, we think it's core to perhaps our identity or who we are or how we love, then all of that also has implications for recovering after an incident to the heart and perhaps, you know, moving forward. Yeah, most definitely. I don't want to overwhelm no. <laughs> um, the, the nurse at, you know, the bedside, but I guess the important take-home factors is if you see a patient who's struggling at the bedside with their breathing um, and they're slouched down halfway down the bed, maybe sit them up, reposition them, because quite often repositioning them and making them more comfortable, even applying some oxygen, um, those things can sometimes have an immediate relief for that patient and reduce that anxiety and then that can help facilitate the rest of your nursing interventions and treatments from there on. Perfect. Right, so your number three is the importance of patient education prior to discharge when someone has been diagnosed with um, acute heart failure. So what's, a, what's that all about? What's the responsibility for nurses at the bedside? Yeah, well, I think it's really important to note that there's actually studies that have shown that two-thirds of chronic heart failure admissions could have been avoided due to better medical therapy advocacy um, and adherence, um, better access to social and medical supports for both the chronic heart failure patient and their family or carer, as well as appropriate responses to acute exacerbations or signs of deterioration in the heart failure patient. So we, we as heart nurses know that good education plays such a huge role in the management of the heart failure patient. And I guess myself, having worked in the acute area as well as the outpatient setting now, I've seen firsthand the uh, importance and benefit of good bedside education as well as following this through out into the community. So let's – I'm putting you on the spot here. Sorry to do this. Um, let's just say I'm, I've had an MI. Um, I've got a – I'm leaving hospital with a de- decreased ejection fraction. I'm going to – I'm being – I've had some pamphlets on, um, on my follow-up and stuff. But what might a short conversation look and feel like um, that you would be having with me like as a discharge education conversation? Yeah, so I think it's really important to take the patient's individual social detriments into consideration. So things like their social, financial, cultural um, situations are really important. So just working out what social supports are already in place for that patient. Um, Do they have access to a GP? Because that's a huge thing, particularly with these heart patients, whether you've had a heart attack or you've been diagnosed with heart failure. Uh, If you don't have a GP, where's the hospital going to send that discharge summary to? They'll give it to the patient. Um, Depending on the patient, are they going to advocate for themselves and see a GP? It'll be Um, in the bottom drawer and under the cutlery in the kitchen. If it makes it out of the car. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, access to medical supply. So what services are in place? Can we really get the ball rolling for this patient prior to discharge? such as referring them to cardiac rehab or 
our service, for instance, or an excellent social worker that can help them. Woohoo! <laughs> uh, so all of those things are really um, important to consider prior to giving your patient education before they go home. Um, but the key things would be for someone who's had a heart attack and someone who's got a reduced ejection fraction, well, there's a few things to consider here. Uh, you want to un- make sure that they understand the correct chest pain protocol So if they develop any chest pain at home, knowing what to do about that, Um, if they get more breathless or um, reduced exercise tolerance, if they're getting swelling in their lower legs, that sort of thing, um, just knowing what to do if that happens. So that's that's what you'd be wanting to teach your patient about what to do post-discharge and that it's really important um, to see your GP usually within one week just for a post-discharge follow-up. A lot of this stuff obviously is then dependent on the patient and their family understanding that. And that's actually your number four point, you know, self-management strategies for heart failure. So what, again, what does that look like? You know, what sort of things do we need to be checking off that they understand that they've got, you know, the knowledge that they know what they're doing? Yeah, you know, and that's a really good point because... Um, quite often patients in the inpatient setting, if they're newly diagnosed with their heart condition or exacerbation of their condition, it can be quite overwhelming. So what you deliver them in, as part of your education is really key because I can tell you now that they don't always retain everything that you've told them. Mm. Um, in some situations, um, such as, you know, if they've got a cognitive impairment, for instance, um, it may be more appropriate to speak to the family or carer to de- deliver that education. But the things that I um, would try and get that patient or carer or both, because usually I do try and involve the, the family and carer um, in the bedside education with the patient, because it's always good to have a second year, is um, these main self-management strategies. And they include things like daily ways, fluid restriction, low-salt diet, good medication compliance, and then just some basic lifestyle modifications. So we know that smoking cessation, um, alcohol, they're big ones. Um, We recommend ceasing alcohol altogether, but no more than one to two standard drinks per day. And even just adopting some regular low to moderate intensity exercise is important as well. But the big take-home thing is the patient understanding why they're doing these things as well. So if you're telling them to go and weigh themselves or restrict their fluids, they'll be thinking, well, geez, you're taking my salt away off me. You know, one and a half litres, that accumulates pretty quick. Why have I got to do this? And when do I have to weigh myself? Can I do that in the middle of the day at night time or should I be doing it in the morning? Yeah. <laughs> so it's important that they understand why they're doing these things. Yeah, Okay. So your number five and final point is having a heart failure action plan. Um, What does that look like? Yeah, so um, as part of our statewide services, they brought together this heart failure um, action plan and um, that's to help patients and their carers. So it's a little laminated sheet that they can put on their fridge at home um, and it just tells them what to do in the event of an emergency and then what to do in those scenarios that may be more semi-urgent, so seeking medical attention such as a GP or a service like ourselves within 24 hours. So uh, what we recommend is if a patient has severe chest pain that's not relieved 
after three a total of three uh, GTN uh, in a total of ten minutes, um, or severe blackouts, or severe shortness of breath, then to phone an ambulance. So to phone triple zero. Um, those that are semi-urgent in the heart failure patient specifically is if they have a sudden weight gain or loss of one kilo per day for two days. So we say that um, two kilos in two days is a sudden weight change. It's easy to do that with fluid, but it's difficult to put that much weight on or lose that much weight with diet. Um, And also if they have any uh, swelling in their abdomen or ankles, uh, if they have any worsening shortness of breath, particularly at night time or rest, um, or if whether they have any palpitations um, with dizziness that might be new. So um, they're things to consider, you know, so we try and get their, them to see their GP within 24 hours. So my sons have anaphylaxis. We have an anaphylaxis action plan, sits on the fridge. Is it a similar kind of looking thing? And, you know, with that sort of... With that sort of action plan, does the patient need to be really aware of um, this is what my resting heart rate is and so if I'm feeling my heart pound faster, that's another sign? Like how specific should that action plan be? Yeah. Um, it isn't a really specific action plan but these patients, this is designed for that patient who's either been newly diagnosed or they're living with chronic heart failure and they're quite aware of their symptoms at this stage a lot of these patients are quite in touch with their body. They know what their normal is. Um, some patients may get palpitations um, on a more regular basis, but they know when to call an ambulance. And this may be if they have associated symptoms such as dizziness, chest pain or shortness of breath. Um, but if they reasonably uns- um, asymptomatic with it and, they, um, and it's not prolonged for too long, and then usually they can manage it quite well. So the patient really usually would know what their norm is and when to seek help. And, and that's a huge part of our education for that individualised patient as well. It's a pretty fascinating area in terms of technological advancement as well because we've now got smart devices that can take an ECG relatively accurately yes. from a rhythm point of view on your wrist available. Yep. And I, I know a lot of um, cardiology services are starting to – uh, either through clinical practice already, encourage wearables and pulling um, pulling an ECG when you feel how, uh, palpitations and stuff. Is that something that's starting to bubble up in the service here or is that still the kind of next frontier sort of stuff? Uh, we get occasional, um, usually the younger patients, they might have like a, a watch that can tell them all of those things and sometimes they're more on top of it than I am because I'm not very tech savvy to be honest. But um, but yes, we are seeing that and it is a really helpful uh, and useful tool for those patients. Um, yeah, definitely. Also see if the watch band's getting tighter, I suppose, and the retaining <laughs> yes. fluid. I can't imagine how acutely aware you must become of your heart rhythm after you've suffered, you know, either a heart attack or been made aware that you've got, you know, heart failure. That that relationship with the nursing staff and, and assisting the family to help the person stay calm and to get used to this new norm, I'd imagine it's very vital. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, you're right, these patients can get very hypersensitive about their symptoms once they've had a terrible experience and um, quite often patients are very anxious about feeling that again. 
before Liz has a go at uh, recapping the five things, is there somewhere that we can go to learn for a bit of a deep dive into heart failure, terminology, uh, classifications and the like? Yeah, so the Heart Foundation um, online, Heart Online is a really good website um, for um, staff to look at and patients. So, yeah, it's got a lot of good information on there. Awesome. Thanks, Janine. All right, so I'm going to have an attempt of summarising what we've talked today. Please, by all means, jump in and help me if you can see that I'm failing (laughs) in the heart failure summary. (laughs) So, number one, what are the signs and symptoms of heart failure? And I think the biggest one that I heard is really around shortness of breath. And it was a new thing for me to discover that sometimes people can cope really well until they go to bed and they lie on their back and then all of a sudden they can't breathe. Because I imagine people assume that's respiratory. So that's a big one. And that sometimes that shortness of breath can even lead to a cough um, and that edema or puffiness um, can be associated with that. And in an extreme, we might see some blueness of the peripheral, yep, and around the mouth, I guess, and some sweatiness. Yep. All right, number two, nursing interventions in acute heart failure. So I heard, I guess, the big thing was around reassurance and anxiety, you know, Yes. Just really responding to those psychological symptoms in the first thing, keeping patients comfortable um, and then encouraging them or kind of empowering them, I guess, to take responsibility and control of either this new and acute situation or what may be becoming a chronic situation. Were there any other nursing interventions that were important at that stage? Um, yeah, I think a big one. Uh, if you're a patient, if you're a nurse on the ward, looking after that acute heart failure patient, um, initiating a one and a half liter fluid restriction, fluid balance chart, low salt diet, and daily weights as part of their care plan is pretty imperative. Yep, perfect. And if it's an acute thing, how often should people also be paying attention? I guess to their OBS. Yeah, so regular observation monitoring. A lot of the time this is directed by the treating team on how often they want observations, but in the acute setting I think it would be reasonable to be doing continuous um, monitoring. So if they're in a monitored ward, they may have arterial blood pressure monitoring, which can be really handy. Otherwise, you know, every 15 minutes to half hour until they're stabilised is appropriate. Great. So three and four, I'm going to try and combine them really because it's the importance of patient education and then the importance of self-management. So I guess what I heard is that this patient and this family now has to live with a new norm. There's going to be daily weights, there's going to be diet restrictions, things about remembering, you know, to cut out your salt, to be mindful of alcohol, how important it is for everybody to give up smoking Um, but especially for the person with heart failure, and that people don't just need to be kind of told what to do. They need to understand what the consequences are or why, you know, salt has implications for the heart failure patient or why fluid has implications so that people can kind of understand the cause and effect. Yes, 100% agree. Great. And number five is make sure your patient has a heart failure action plan so that they know if I've got extreme, you know, chest pain, extreme shortness of breath, if I've gained or lost more than two kilos uh, in a day, over two days, uh, then it's time to see someone and to be very clear that, you know, in an acute situation, they are to call 
for an ambulance or a paramedic immediately. Correct. All right. Fantastic. Janine, thanks so much for joining us um, on Five Things Today and telling us all about heart failure. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things.